Welcome to the final Stereo Geeks episode of 2020. We continue with our Christmas special in what we've been busy with. I'm Mon. I'm Ron. We will be discussing spoilers for all the movies and books that we are talking about during this episode. So if you haven't watched them or read them, please check them out and return to our episode. So since we've been catching up with Christmas movies, I decided to watch The Christmas Chronicles Part 2. I watched the first part a couple of years ago on Christmas Day. I thought, eh, whatever, it's not, I'm not going to enjoy this. But actually it was really sweet and really captured the magic of Christmas. It was about a pair of siblings. The younger one was obviously the one who believed in Christmas. Her older brother, not so much. And now we take off in the second part and they've both already met Santa Claus and they believe in the Christmas spirit. But things have changed a lot. In the first film when we met the siblings, uh, they had just just lost their father and they were really struggling to celebrate Christmas without him. Now in this film, it's been a couple of years later and they're going to get a new dad. Their mother has met this very nice man played by Tyrese Gibson and it seems like certain things are going to be going ahead. But the little girl, she just can't get into it and she needs Santa to come and bring some Christmas spirit to her life. But Bellsnickel, a former elf turned human, is here to rob Christmas of its joy. Can Santa, Mrs. Claus, young Kate and her soon-to-be stepbrother Jack save the day? I sadly did not enjoy this movie. <laughs> I really wanted to and the production values are so much better than in the first film. Like we go to the North Pole and we're there in the Christmas village. We see all these elves and everything. We'd only got like a little glimpse of it in the first film. So those bits I really liked. It was very beautiful and you really felt like, you know, it's very magical and stuff. But the movie itself, no. It turned into a generic action film with Santa Claus in it. <laughs> That sounds terrible. I really wanted to capture that feeling from the first film, like, you know, how you're feeling a bit down and you just want something to reignite that love for Christmas in you, especially when you're a little older and stuff. This one just doesn't do that. Like, I like action. That's fun. But this strayed so far away from the Christmas part of it that I just couldn't get into it. Like, even the characters, it felt like they were manufacturing their disappointment and everything. Kate is upset that they're spending Christmas in a tropical city. So they're, like, on the beach. And you're like, okay, so what? No, Christmas has to be white. And Christmas has to have snow in it. No, it doesn't. It's so weird. So yeah, it just seemed like they were doing this for no reason at all. And Bob, the new dad, he seems really nice. I'm like, why doesn't Kate like him? And he's making this huge effort to be like really nice and sweet and getting to know her and all. And I'm just like, you're not even trying. And I realize Kate is young, but not that young that she should be throwing tantrums for no reason. It was just a bit strange. Kurt Russell as Santa Claus is amazing. I don't know why. When I watched the first film, I was like, there is no way in hell this is gonna work. But he was great. And he's like really enjoying himself being Santa. Uh, Goldie Hawn is Mrs. Claus which is really fun because they're together in real life. So we got like this cameo from her in the first film and you're like oh yeah and now you get to see her a bit more. She's very sweet. I don't know 
know, like I've seen Goldie Hawn and so much stuff, but this one is not her best work. Whereas Kurt Russell is like totally into it. Julian Dennison as Bells Nickel. Now, Julian Dennison is really incredible young actor. We've seen him in Hunt for the Wilder People. We've seen him in Deadpool 2. I'm beginning to feel a lot like this boy is getting stereotyped. Already? Yeah. This character of Bells Nickel is kind of a lot like his character in Deadpool 2. He was betrayed by his parents and he wants to fight back and he's really a good person at heart but he's doing bad things because he just wants revenge. I really think that this is not fair because there's a lot more that he can do. I mean we've seen it in Hunt for the Wilder People so it's just really frustrating to see him being stereotyped in this particular kind of role. Apart from Jack and his father Bob there aren't really any other characters of color so for the main villain to be of Maori descent is really irritating. So yeah, despite the production values being pretty cool and there being some moments where I quite enjoyed the mythos that they've created, I really didn't enjoy this film that much. The central family themselves, they didn't really work for me. I think the first one, there was a good foil between the older brother and the little sister because he was like, Santa Claus doesn't exist, Christmas doesn't exist. Why are we doing all this? And the little girl is like, no, she's a true believer and she believes in Christmas. They worked really well together. The brother has like a teensy tiny role in this one. It's all very magical in that sense, but the conflict is so manufactured. And even the happy ending, you're like, yeah, it's great and stuff, but it just could have been done better. It's one of those sequels that feels like a sequel. Bigger, better, but not. I was sadly disappointed. I really, really wanted to enjoy this film. Oh, that's so sad. That sort of continues in the same vein for the next film. I was kind of excited when I heard about the Christmas setup. Apparently, it's a rare occurrence that Lifetime has queer couples in the lead. And the Christmas setup has a gay man finding true love. So played by Ben Lewis, Hugo is this lawyer who's been trying to become partner for three years now. Finally, just before the Christmas break, he asks one more time and the boss kind of goes, we're not too sure you're ready for it. So he's kind of crushed, but he has something to look forward to. He and his best friend Madeline, who is played by Ellen Wong, they're off to his home where they meet his mom, Fran Drescher's Kate. So she is this vivacious, Christmas-loving person. Like, the house cannot have enough lights, cannot have enough Christmas trees. It's just Christmas everywhere you look. And Kate, unbeknownst to Hugo, has set him up with the other gay dude in their uh, small town, which is Patrick, played by Blake Lee. Patrick is a couple of years older than Hugo, and they went to school together. Patrick was already out in high school, but he was the most popular kid. Hugo, on the other hand, was still in the closet. He didn't come out till he was in college. So when Patrick meets Hugo, he doesn't actually know that uh, he's gay. He finds out later on. And it's obvious that Hugo is kind of interested in Patrick, especially once he finds out that Patrick is not down in the dumps selling Christmas trees and needing a tip. In fact, Patrick has already retired. He made this popular app, which even Maddie knows about. And yeah, now he's giving back to the community. He's working with his dad and sending people trees and helping around town. So anyway, this being a Christmas romantic film, they find each other, they need to figure out whether they can be together. And in the end, there's a happy ending, if you can call it that. Wow, I just was so disappointed in this film. I was kind of really excited. Like, I really was. 
Final Bendu is only from Arrow. He plays the adult version of Oliver Queen's son. Hugo is pretty much the same as William. <laughs> I didn't see any difference. Like, it was literally like, did you transport him from one place to the other? Yeah, I could totally see William going to the same thing <laughs> when he goes back to Star City. <laughs> exactly, right? I wanted to like this character. I really liked Ellen Wong's Maddie. Yeah, she was really nice. She was really cool. She brought a sort of natural vivacity, which fit with the fact that um, Hugo is kind of stayed from time to time. He's too restrained. And of course, Frank Drescher is like over the top. Though I thought that she was pretty believable. Yeah, she was. She, she was like this really fun, cool mom who's just up and everything. So yeah. But the central relationship, while it worked for a bit, after a while, it just fell away. Because I felt like they tried to make it seem like this idyllic, happy ending. But I just feel like Hugo made the wrong decision because he was pressured into making that decision. Throughout the film, I felt like Hugo was being pressured to do things that he didn't want to do. Like even with the public speaking, like he doesn't want to go up on stage and talk. Everybody's like, no, no, go up and talk. He doesn't want to go up and sing. Everybody's like, no, no, go up and sing. Like, why are you being pushed to do all these things? Just leave him be. Yeah, he gets this great opportunity, which he's been vying for for years. And in quintessential rom-com style, he sort of decides that love is better than opportunity, which I just can't get behind. I didn't think it made sense in this film. Why does he have to give up the opportunity to be with Patrick? Patrick literally has everything right now. He's retired. He sold his app for a ton of money. He can do whatever he wants. He can go wherever he wants as well. So why on earth is he pressuring Hugo? We see them agreeing that it's going to be fine and oh, it's going to be okay if it's long distance and Hugo goes up on stage and sings this song and then suddenly there's like this weird switch that goes off and Patrick is like no I can't like what what where did this come from what do you mean you can't like you were literally just saying what changed in three minutes I definitely don't agree with this story at all I mean it doesn't really capture the Christmas spirit for me because in the end these guys really don't know each other that well and you want to say it's all true love and all that what exactly is Hugo going to do in his hometown is this a relationship that's going to last or is this just a convenient relationship that's happened? I mean, yes, I get that uh, Hugo's mom was trying to set them up and they already have that experience from being in school together. But are there no other gay people around? Why is Patrick Hugo's only choice? Why is Hugo Patrick's only choice? That's what pulled me up a bit short because I was like, there have to be other reasons why these two are together. But if it's not there in the film, then how are we supposed to believe it? The thing is that we know that there is some kind of queer community here. Patrick talks about how there's a queer club for youths. There's a whole drag circuit happening. They didn't have that when they were growing up. So he's really happy that things have changed so much. That means that they have other options. Why are these two together? I agree with you. I was just so underwhelmed by it all. I'm really frustrated because you want to do something different. You want to make a queer film. But you're going to go down the same road, take the same tropes. Then you're not doing anything special. It seems to me like this was a straight film with gay characters in it. And also, why don't we see any other gay people? Yeah, there's a hint that somebody in the past may have been in a queer relationship. And then why? That kind of validity is required in a story where they're in a small town which isn't accepting them. No one bats an eyelid. Mm. So what is the point of that? It was like a red herring for the audience. Mm. Where does this go? Does this validate anything? No, it has nothing to do with it. 
I felt like there were two disparate stories which they just put together mm. and said, "Yay, we've made something different. Now please applaud us." <laughs> yeah, and and like the ending as well. Like I actually ended up feeling a bit confused because I was like, "Hang on, so is he taking the new job or is he not?" The way it ends, you're like, "Oh, I guess he's not." It's not explicit. I feel like the last act completely fell away. It had no clue what it was doing. They tried to wrap it all up quickly, and everything that had been happening up until that point, just forget about it. Like pretend it didn't happen because obviously it doesn't happen for the characters. Even the central premise that this is a Christmas set up, you wouldn't know it unless you'd seen the name of the film because it doesn't really come across as a set up. I think it would have made more sense for it to be a Christmas setter had the mother's intentions been a bit more clear. Like, why does she like Patrick for her son? We don't know. We don't even see them interacting. He's bringing a tree for her. That's it. So, what is the connection there? And what I felt is the setup for the setup was not built up. In the first scene, had we realized that Hugo is really lacking in love. Okay, he's broken up with somebody, but that's okay. That's fine. It happens a lot of times. It's not like he's feeling this grave loss or that. he's spoken to his mother or even Maddie for that instance oh you know he's just feeling so lonely and hence this idea has sprung in Kate's mind that oh you know there's this guy maybe Kate's had some interactions with Patrick which has made her think yes you know he seems really nice i would love to set him up with my son but none of that comes across it's like Hugo just wants to be home he wants to get away from work he doesn't want to think about the pressures of work the fact that his promotion is not coming and he wants to hang out with his best friend he wants to hang out with his mom and then there's the setup I honestly felt like for the majority of the film Hugo's story revolved more around his job than his love life and I thought that this romance that was happening between him and Patrick was just a consequence of them being in this place that they were both comfortable in during a magical time of the year but the last act makes it seem like the job was not that important whereas finding a partner was so it ended up actually being rather jarring as a viewer if you'd seen the whole thing because Hugo's final decision just doesn't track with what he'd been fighting so much for from the beginning the thing is i would have still understood his decision had we seen him being absolutely and completely miserable at his job he's not he really believes in what he's doing and he really wants to move up in this company and he's really excited when he gets that call right i'm wondering whether it was that interaction that they have on the roof right where patrick is like oh, lawyers suck and he goes like i'm a lawyer do you think that part of the reason why he changed his mind i, I don't know You're still trying to do some mental gymnastics to make it all fit and work. None of it does because at the end of the day, Hugo's magical return home for those few weeks is really dictated by the fact that he's back with his mom, he's hanging out with his best friend, he meets a cute guy, and he solves a mystery, and he saves something that he really loves. Those are great, but this isn't a long-term thing. So if you take those elements away, what happens? Does Hugo still enjoy being back in his hometown? What is he going to do there? Like does his hometown need a hotshot lawyer? It probably doesn't. But he's worked so hard to get to a great position and he's throwing it all away. Is Patrick a worthy person to throw it away for? That's how I felt like Patrick is a really selfish person because he's retired. He has basically nothing to do. So he's latched on to Hugo. I mean that's how it came across to me. He's latched on to Hugo who is a really sweet guy. Who's a very smart guy, and that's it. So he's like, "No, I won't let you go." It just seemed to me like it was a very manipulative kind of move by him. The moment they sort of made an agreement, he just reneges, and he makes Hugo feel guilty about it. I don't get it. And then everybody keeps telling Hugo that you belong here. 
If Hugo himself doesn't feel like that, then why are we telling him? One person who really should have been telling him, you belong here and you stay here, is his mom. But Kate, on the other hand, she is so happy for him. You can see in every interaction, especially after the cat is out of the bag, that he's going away to London. She's the one who's still encouraging him to go and be the best version of himself. Everybody else is like, no, stay here. Why? I mean, I haven't watched too many rom-coms. In the few that I have seen, this always kind of is the gimmick that they use to keep a character in a place. Like, everybody will come and tell them, no, you belong here or you belong with that person. I need to see that. And we need to feel that. As an audience, we need to really root for them to be here, which we don't. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I'm going to choose the job over the guy. Sorry. How old is Hugo? He's like early 30s and he's being made partner in a gigantic law firm. To hell with you, Patrick. And in New York, like this is a big deal. Dude. And he's being sent to London to expand his horizons. Come on. He's going to be running the London office. You give that all up for Patrick. <laughs> Who you won't be known for like one Christmas week, that's it? No, no. You know what? I was with this film till the last act. Till that point, I was like, oh, it's so sweet. Look at how they're getting along. Oh, what's going to happen? And then the last act happened and I was just like, what? Why? It didn't work for me. No, I agree with you. It was not a Christmas film. I know we've talked about the entire film, but going back to the beginning, what was with the double entendres? Also, oh, I weird. forgot about them. That was so weird, right? Yeah, it was really like awkward yeah. and uncomfortable. Unnecessary. Yeah, especially there was this scene when Patrick has just brought the tree in and they were framing it in such a way that I felt like they were trying to insinuate something. Like Hugo's down on the ground on all fours trying to fix the tree and Patrick is up top trying to fix a branch. And I kept trying to think, are they trying to frame it in a particular way? Are they trying to say something? Because we've been so conditioned by all the double entendres up until then that I thought that they were trying to say something or insinuate something. But it didn't make any sense. So I'm guessing it was just an overlong scene where it was just badly made. Yeah, it didn't make sense. Despite the fact that Ben Lewis and Blake Lee are married in real life, I could not feel the chemistry on screen. No, I agree. I was actually really surprised when you told me that. I was like, oh, okay, no. I mean, they looked comfortable with each other, but chemistry just didn't come through at all. Moving on to yet another Christmas film. So Dashing in December sees Peter Potts' Wyatt Burwall return to his ranch to be with his mom during Christmas. His mom, Deb, played by Andy McDowell, is kind of struggling with the ranch. It's huge. It takes up a lot of money and it's not really bringing anything in. Wyatt has not been back in years, so Deb is obviously excited to see him. But there's a little bit of tension about the ranch and what to do about it, their future and the future of the horses that they have. Into the mix, we have Juan Pablo Dipas's Heath Ramos. Uh, Heath has been working on the ranch for a while, and Deb is really fond of him. He's super helpful and kind of almost a stand-in for Wyatt for her. And we also have uh, Caroline Harris's Blake, who is an old friend of Wyatt's. And later on, we meet Carlos Sanz's Carlos, the former ranch hand who may or may not be a little bit more important to Deb. So this movie <laughs> was an experience in many ways. Considering I have never heard of queer Christmas movies before, this is the fourth queer Christmas film we've seen this year. Each one has been a roller coaster in its own way. This was probably the strangest one. Aside from the fact that the ranch setting is really out there for a queer movie, the characters are really strangely written. And I don't know what they were going for with this. 
And that ending, oh yeah, this is another ending that I'm just not sure about. So Wyatt as a character is generally unlikable. I think they were going with the Scrooge personality for this guy. He's very grumpy at this office party that he's at just before he leaves for the ranch. He has this big project and he has to kind of take work to the ranch because he needs to finish this deal. And it takes a while, I would say two thirds of the film, before we realize that his promotion, the project and selling the ranch are all interlinked. So that goes to show you how good the writing is. Hashtag sarcasm. And Wyatt is so invested in selling the ranch because he's paying for it. He's paying for the taxes and obviously it's not making any money. So his idea is to basically get it off his mother's hands and sell it to his client. And he goes about convincing his mother in such a terrible fashion. He basically on the first dinner that he's there shoves this portfolio of numbers at her. And on the opposite side is Heath, who loves this ranch. He has a magical connection to it from his childhood. And he's obviously really invested in taking care of the horses, taking care of the ranch, taking care of Deb. He does not want to let it go. He also doesn't know how invested Wyatt is in this ranch because he doesn't know about the financial situation. Heath basically spends his entire time pushing back against this idea of selling the ranch. And then there's Wyatt, who is... Well, it's his ranch, so he can do whatever he wants. Wyatt is looking at Heath as the ranch employee. Deb is looking at Heath as her son, maybe future son-in-law. And Heath is just wrapped up in the whole ranch situation. And among all this, we are supposed to be invested in a love story. Suffice to say, it does not go well. This was so hard to watch because Wyatt is the worst character ever. I hated this guy. Like every time he seemed to take a turn where you would end up liking him, he would just do something really horrible. And he is mean. He is a nasty creature. There's nothing good about Wyatt. There's no redeeming quality about this man. He is so self-absorbed. He does not see anybody else's point of view. And he's very white savior. Like, my dude, do you think about the words that come out of your mouth before you speak them? And he attacks everyone. So there's this dinner scene, which is basically Wyatt's way of making a special evening for Heath. And somehow Wyatt is the one who ruins it. Completely. I mean, that is a complete and utter disaster. And it's all Wyatt's fault. After that scene, I was like, everybody should wash their hands off this man. Even Deb is like disappointed in her son. But somehow the very next scene sees Blake consoling Wyatt. And somehow it's all about Wyatt's man pain. And not about all the horrible things he just said to the three most important people in his life. I'm just like, what? What is with this writing? I have no idea. So we've got to talk about the fact that Heath is originally from Colombia. And there's kind of a weird imbalance because, you know, he's also an employee. And Wyatt kind of seems to imply that he can do stuff for Heath to make his life easier. And I'm just like, you do realize that sounds a little bit weird, right? Like you can give him a job so he can continue working for you. Aren't you trying to like have a relationship? What? That entire scene was so young. One thing I'll say is I'm glad he stood up for himself. But it's all underdone by the fact that we have to have a happy ending at the end. And it just doesn't work. This entire film was a cringe. I don't know what they were planning to do with this. They weren't even trying. Okay, the setting is a bit strange. 
why does this family have to be a ranch? I don't get it. It was just so weird because Heath is living on the ranch, but like he doesn't have enough space for a Christmas tree. And then the water stops working at one point and he has to go and like have a shower in the, in the main house. And I'm just like, ew, like this is very upstairs, downstairs. And that's never addressed. So that makes it very uncomfortable to watch. But then his Colombian background is kind of brought in like a couple of times, but not like very much. And of course, his father ran off with a young woman because let's just throw a stereotype in there for no reason. And why does he like Wyatt at all? They have a few conversations which are like, okay, but there's nothing nice about Wyatt. Like he's... He's constantly throwing his weight around. He's constantly being like condescending. There's nothing nice about him. His first interaction with his mom when he arrives, he complains about every single thing. I'm surprised that his mother didn't actually hit him. (laughs) And she's this long suffering woman. (laughs) What on earth is wrong with that? I I don't know, like, it's only in that dinner scene later on where Deb really looks disappointed. But I'm like, woman, you should have, like, thrown him out of the house long time ago. He's not nice. The problem with this film is the structure. We start off with the fact that, yes, he's just freshly off a breakup. We also see that he has a lot of work to do. But then we're thrown immediately into, oh, he wants to sell that ranch. But none of that is connected. So structurally, the film doesn't make sense. We see him actually working on his whatever he's doing once. And I'm like, wait, all this while, what were you doing? Weren't you supposed to be bringing work home or something? So yeah, it was really confusing to watch. And then much later on, when you see that everything's connected, you're like, oh, okay, why didn't you tell us that sooner? Yeah. Again, the setup for the actual premise is completely hidden. So we're not invested. If you're going to make a character who is nasty or seems mean or Scrooge-like, then there has to be a reason why you expect us to be invested in him. And it would make sense if you see him looking at these property taxes and being like, oh my God, like how am I going to do this? And pushing to get more work and a senior position, knowing that, yes, I'll get more money so that I can keep this going. If you have that connection, you can sympathize and empathize with this character because the ranch is all he has and it's connected to his father. But we don't get that. We know from the beginning that Wyatt hasn't come home for Christmas in ages. But we only learn why that is much later on. And it's some kind of like sappy reason about why he couldn't live up to his father's expectations, even though his father has been dead for 15 years or something. And I'm just like, what? This is a problem with a lot of writing. They forget that there are real reasons why people can't be home for Christmas. Like they have jobs, they work in retail, they work in whatever. They need to finish a project, so you can't do it. That's a realistic but unfortunate reality. Had they included that in, again, it would have made Wyatt a more sympathetic character. But they don't do any of that. I don't even know what Wyatt's job is. What does he do? I agree with you. I didn't get it either. I don't understand. He has clients. Okay, what? I feel like the creative brief for this film was we want two gay guys in cowboy hats dancing in one scene. And they made the entire movie around that. The same problem that we had with Christmas setup, we're having the same problem in Dashing in December. 
what is the connection between Wyatt and Heath? Literally, the only thing they have in common is the fact that they're both gay. There's this scene, right, where Heath's like, oh, you're gay? And Wyatt already knows he's gay, so that means Deb told Wyatt about Heath, but she didn't tell Heath about Wyatt. Which doesn't make sense to me, because there's not that playing favorites? And also, we learn later on that she was trying to set them up. So then, why would you not tell them? Like, why do you want to spring that on him? And that also means that Deb doesn't talk about Wyatt when he's away. He's been here for at least a few years now. How have they not talked about him and his previous relationships? Like, the guy apparently has, like, a revolving door of relationships. This is ridiculous. And it's only after they start getting together that he finds out about all these, you know, endless relationships. And he doesn't want to be just one other person in that. Why is all this information coming so much later? And the thing is, look at the time span. It's, what, one week? Maybe less than that? And we're supposed to believe that these two have fallen in love and they want to be together forever. Dude, you literally have no other options in this place. That's why you like this guy. And also, like, there are so many weird stereotypes that keep coming in. Like, of course, the poor person of color will not have had any relationships, even though he's, you know, been out for a while. Uh, Seriously, in the 21st century, how are we seeing this? Yeah, I was really disappointed in this film. It was structurally a mess. I didn't care about many of the characters. I definitely hated Wyatt, who is our protagonist. And it played out in this series of tropes and disconnected events. It just didn't work for me. Yeah, and like there were these really weird little moments. Like in the beginning, why do they keep saying the years so specifically? Right? I noticed that as well. It's like every other dialogue was like, he's been gone five years. He joined three years ago. So-and-so died 15 years ago. It's like, okay, like what is this? Like history? In fact, there were so many years thrown at us after I was like, what? What? How? uh, What? Like how many years has Wyatt not been here? How many years has he been working? When did Dev go and see him? I don't know. I'm just like, way too much information. Nobody needs to know all this. It literally felt like, like you know how when you're writing your first draft, <laughs> you end up being very specific. And then after that, you know, you revise it and stuff. And then you're just like, yeah, no, nobody needs to know this information. It's like that that stage was missed. Calling it a first draft actually feels a bit authentic because that's exactly how this film felt. There were certain scenes that felt like they'd made alternate versions. Oh. I don't know why it felt like that to me, but it really did. Like, especially that scene after that dinner with the projector. And Blake is, like, telling Wyatt that everything is going to be okay. And I was just like, this feels very much like they shot something else, which didn't work. So they put this in because they'd already shot it. And it really just took me out of the experience of watching the movie. And then in the end, for Heath to want to be with Wyatt is just so stupid. I agree with you. Like, everybody gets their little romantic, happy ending. But I felt like this was a bad choice. In fact, at one point, Wyatt even tells his mother that Heath can do better than him. But Heath doesn't. I just don't understand. So we are told that apparently there aren't very many gay people in this particular area. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that there are no gay people anywhere else. If Heath really wants to have a relationship with somebody, then he can go somewhere else. His his only choice shouldn't have to be Wyatt. I think that's my main problem with the two films that we're talking about today. It's like the gay characters literally have no other choice but each other. And that feels tokenistic. We were talking about this in our previous episode about new Christmas films that we've been catching up with. And we had the same problem with The Christmas House, where the 
gay couple over there who were at least a bit more settled and actually fit were the only gay characters there. Whereas with The Happiest Season, which we'd also spoken about in the previous episode, you got a feeling that there were other gay people around, that there was a gay community. And like we saw the gay bar that they went to whereas with Christmas setup they talk about it but we never see it so it feels very much like they don't have a choice but that's not how these romantic stories should go like the whole point is for you to see that there are lots of people around in the world and you find the one among all those people in a straight story that's what would happen but these stories they don't give us that choice and that's really not fair And what bothers me is that if you're going to say that in this small town, there are no other gay people, there's not much choice, then this being a Christmas movie, the Christmas miracle shouldn't be that these two people are now settling for each other. It should be that they finally found each other. And that means you need to make them both likable, which you did not. It really feels like this movie was phoned in. Oh, that's a really good way of putting it. It does feel like this movie was phoned in. But also I find it really funny that, you know, like with Tyrese Gibson, Fran Drescher, Andy McDowell, all the people that we watched growing up are now playing the parents of these, you know, the protagonists. Oh, God. Oh, well. (laughs) Guess that tells you something. Yeah. I was really hoping for something fun. That's the key ingredient that's missing from these films. The fun factor. It's not enjoyable because you're so wrapped up in everything that's wrong with these people because they are not great people. And it's drama for drama's sake. Oh, you're so right. I don't want this to be like too negative in the sense that at least we're getting queer content. But come on, we can do so much better than this. Three out of the four Christmas films that we've spoken about over the last two episodes have had couples who are newish hoping to you know have a life together and all of them feel toxic well said you're right and that worries me because is that the case with all romantic films you and i not being experts in the romance category makes me worry that this is the norm and you and i just don't know it ew i really hope not like that's what kind of message is that sending out Well, I'm hoping that this is just the beginning and next year we're going to get all sorts of queer films that will be much more holistic and joyful and actually magical and not like these. Here's hoping. So moving swiftly away from anything Christmas, we are going to be talking about some books that we've been listening to. Yes, listening to because we love audiobooks and listening to audiobooks frees up time to do other stuff because in today's day and age, you need time. So one of the books that's been on my list for a really, really long time is The Three-Body Problem, written by Shijin Liu and translated by his brother Ken Liu. This book series is a sci-fi and it's apparently being adapted for a TV series. I've been meaning to read this series for some time and I finally got it from my library. So I read the first part, which is called Remembrance of Earth's Past. So I like to think of myself as a sci-fi fan. I love sci-fi films. I have very little patience with many sci-fi books because they don't try too hard. With this book, I came away really confused. The science fiction elements of it, they're all grounded in real science. Now, whether it's actually real, don't ask me. I don't have a scientific background. But it's very much about formulae and stuff like that. They don't just say quantum in front of everything. But I don't know if it's the translation or if it was the intent of the author to make this book about characters who almost always come across as caricatures. 
it feels like he wrote this book with his tongue firmly in his cheek but at the same time not i just don't know how i feel about this book i am invested in the story but not in the characters the characters are so flat they just don't have any dimension to them the funniest thing is the one character who's pretty much dead inside because she's seen stuff she to me came across as the most multidimensional and she's surrounded by all these male characters who just keep talking but there's just nothing about them that brings them to life I think the writer was more invested in creating these labs, this world, rather than creating his characters. The biggest problem for me with this book was that it starts off with this rather grueling, brutal scene of this almost realistic occurrence. You can imagine a world where there is civil war or unrest. It could lead to an event like this, and it's witnessed by this young person, and it affects her. But then it goes bonkers. Then it becomes all this science stuff. And then there are aliens involved. And I am just like, do I like this book or am I just confused? And this book is award-winning. People love it. You definitely know how much they love it because now it's becoming a TV series. How they're going to convert any part of this particular book? I don't know about the two sequels, but this book is so much more about. the machines that are working the information that the machines are giving you there's so little character that unless the tv show is going to be all spectacle and no people i don't know what they're planning to do and i kept feeling like there was supposed to be a political undercurrent and there is but it sort of got drowned out especially in the last act by this weird insane war that is coming or has come or will come like what even is this Suffice to say that the concepts of this book work in small doses and then not so much. Like the main title of this book is actually a game, but the game has ramifications that go beyond just being a game. Again, there are these little bits which are so much more fascinating, but every time you get invested in it, that's it. The author pulls out. So for me, I think that if you're interested in science and scientific sciency language, people doing science, this may scratch that itch. But at the same time, it's so convoluted and confused that you may come across as not being 100% invested in this world. I do wonder if the two sequels do draw you in more, but before I can get to that, I need a huge break. Well, unlike you, the book series that I was listening to, I have no doubts how I feel about it. and that is that i absolutely despise it oh wow so i have no idea what chaos walking is but they're making a movie out of it and tom holland and daisy ridley from spiderman and star wars are going to be in it so i thought i'm going to go check out the books the first book the knife of never letting go i quite like the concepts the main character todd hewitt is an idiot i have no interest in this character he is bland he is uninteresting he is very monotone and one dimensional he literally just gets to the end on the strength of other characters there is one female character in this book who has a fairly large role but um yeah she's nothing more than a damsel in distress and she does not speak for most of the book don't ask but the world that it's set in and some of the reactions that people have to being there those i didn't mind i liked the world building it's just that the characters brought it down quite a bit 
Also, I also found the religious elements really jarring. I mean, I get that human beings need some religion and stuff. Why do we automatically have to assume that they're going to be Christians? I'm not sure how that works. And it just felt so narrow. It didn't feel like a universal experience was being captured in this book. But then I got to the next two books and uh, wow, wow did it fall away. The second book was nothing short of a disaster. The Ask and the Answer tries to expand what we know of the world and actually ends up making it so much worse. The female character that we met in the first book, Viola, finally gets her own point of view, but her entire inner life surrounds Todd, which makes absolutely no sense because in the prequel to the first book, she lost her parents when she crash landed on this planet. But somehow all her inner thoughts are about this boy she just met and who is a loser. I'm so confused. But then it gets worse. We learn that there is this native species who have been happily living on this world and the humans that have arrived are basically colonizing it and they have enslaved the native race. Okay, fine. Are you trying to make a statement about what has really been happening with colonization? Well, maybe the author wasn't reading the same history books I was because my God, I don't know what he was thinking. There is a scene in this book that is so similar to the Jallianwala Bagh incident and I was just like, you know what? Only somebody who has not read this as part of their history would write this scene into his book and do it entirely from the colonizer's point of view. And we are supposed to sympathize with Todd, who is so sad that these poor natives are being killed in front of him. Oh God, this book is so bad. The third book is slightly better than the second. We get a third point of view along with Todd and Viola's. We get somebody from the massacre who has survived. But of course he's angry and vengeful and does not care about anything else but trying to kill people. He still manages to be the most interesting part of the entire book and also appears to be queer. It's hard to tell with this book. But nothing happens in this third book, Monsters of Men. It's so repetitive that there were times when I was actually wondering to myself if I was listening to the same chapters over and over again. Nothing happens. This book could have been one third the length because so little happens in it. And it keeps trying to tell us that this connection between Todd and Viola is so strong that they're ready to wage war for each other. And I'm like, really? For this year? What was frustrating was that Viola's inner life is still, in the third book, concerned primarily with Todd, who still does nothing to deserve it. In fact, the longer you read this series, the more horrendous Todd becomes. And not only is he self-absorbed and completely clueless about what is happening around him, even though it's happening right in front of his face, but he's so dumb. Like, my dude, what do you think is happening? People are fighting and you're siding with the person who's strongest because that's keeping you protected. And somehow that's supposed to make him a good guy. Please don't ask me what this author was thinking because I can't understand it. And what's frustrating is that from the start of this series to the end of the series, Todd has had no growth. But everybody keeps telling us that he has. He has grown so much. He has learned so much. Look at all this stuff that he's doing. He's not doing anything. He just keeps screaming all the time. It is such a disaster of a series and I'm so annoyed that books like this that are so othering for anybody who's not a white dude or a white woman is the kind of book that's going to be made into a movie which will probably be a huge blockbuster. Well, one can hope not considering the production delays. I'm hoping it's an absolute disaster and Daisy Ridley and Tom Holland completely wash their hands off it. I have no hope for this. I'm just annoyed that something like this is actually even being optioned for film. Yeah, I agree with you. It sounds terrible. 
I mean, honestly, the first book, I didn't mind the concepts in it. It was interesting. But the thing is that the moment you start doing the race stuff and you don't know what you're doing, it becomes obvious. Mm. And the, the second book, like literally that, that scene was so reminiscent of Jalian Malabagh. I was just like, dude, like, do you not know what is happening in the world? What has happened in the world before? Like, how can you write this stuff? Like, do you know the context that you're writing about? And to write it from Todd's point of view is just disgusting. To learn more about the Jallianwala Bagh incident, please refer to the show notes for a link. Right, going on to something a little bit lighter, but I don't know if it's any better. Red, White and Royal Blue by Casey McKiston. I heard about this book on NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. I have a habit of reading books on recommendation, which gives me a wide, diverse variety of books to read. But a lot of times I don't like them. So what's this book about and why did I pick it up? So this book is about the F. Sotus, first son of the United States. Alex Claremont Diaz is a go-getter and he has his eyes on the prize. Currently, it is a very, very stressful time for his family. They are in the midst of a re-election campaign and there is another senator who is champing at the bit to grab the big seat. Alex is very smart, he's very intelligent, he has an equally intelligent and smart sister and his best friend. Everything's going well when they are invited to the royal wedding and an incident takes place between Alex and his nemesis, the Prince of England. (laughs) To save this PR scandal, Alex and Prince Henry, yes, that's his name in the book, they are told that they have to hang out together so that nobody thinks that England and the United States are at war because of these two brats. Anyway, turns out the two of them have more in common than they expected and then socio-political stuff will get in the way of their new found friendship. Or is it more? This book was an experience. It is so much high drama and set in a world that is completely removed from anything that we can imagine. We are talking about people who literally live in Buckingham Palace and the White House. Yeah, you're not going to meet them on the street. Exactly. And it's so far-fetched that you can either be completely invested in this world or you're like, this is ridiculous. This book was like reading a Bollywood film. <laughs> Everything is overdramatic. Everything is high stakes. Like every single move they make is the end of the world. Oh my gosh. A lot of it is told in text messages and emails, which I guess works more when you're reading it, a little less when you're listening to it. I would say that the rest of it, because it's so dialogue heavy, it does feel like you're listening to a play when you're listening to the audiobook. So that's quite good. But my biggest issue with this book and why I couldn't be invested in it was because it really came across as fan fiction. Oh no. I don't know if that was the author's intent, but why on earth did the younger prince have to be called Prince Henry? Why did he have to have sandy hair and Mm -hmm. have gone to the army and this and that? And I'm like, really? This is like complete and utter fan fiction. I just wish that they had chosen anything different about this prince. Because that completely ruined the experience for me. And I just cringed every time he was on the page. What I did like is that this is very new age. There are people of different sexualities, different genders. So that was really nice. There's a lot of interplay and banter between different kinds of characters. So that was fun. 
it's very interactive the world is very different i just wish the drama had been dialed down because it's really really dramatic it's like everything in the world is ending it's like okay i get it like literally you are the f sorters and he is the prince of england but maybe you guys should have talked about it a little bit more i was a little bit surprised at how r rated this book is I thought this was just a YA book, but maybe it passes for a YA. I don't know. Did the NPR people actually mention that? They did not. I feel like they only read the first few chapters, and then they recommended it. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> this stuff really gets hot and heavy later on. There's going to be a huge audience who absolutely loves this book, and I wouldn't be surprised if they are vocal about it. I would actually also not be surprised if this got optioned for a film because it is very visual mm. in the sense that it's so dialogue heavy. The characters really come alive. and considering the political space that we're all in and how political we all feel this might be the kind of book which lends itself well to a movie for varied audiences i just don't think romance novels are for me <laughs> but you give it a shot but the thing is i like reading different kinds of things broadening my horizons i guess romance is one which i will constantly find myself dabbling in and be like not really <laughs> it's just not the genre that speaks to us yeah that's true I mean if it's fun I guess it's okay but this was not fun because of all the drama I mean I get it there are high stakes it's just tone it down <laughs> but did you find that there was anything that you could actually resonate with despite the fact that it's about the f sorters and the prince of england absolutely not also they drink too much i don't understand that everybody's always drunk it's like stop already <laughs> But then what is the appeal of this kind of story if you can't see yourself in it at all is it just aspirational then i think so it's a little bit of a magical prince charming kind of book i guess you could call it disney fairy tale but for a more representative audience so i guess it's not all bad it's just not for me <laughs> that's interesting i just think that there's not been that much queer content that people will be hungry for more and we'll get some good stuff we'll get some bad stuff and we'll get some stuff which is for particular audiences and not for others this is going to be exciting for some groups well it's great to see that we have the kind of queer content we do we need to see who's behind the scenes because it's not coming across as well as it should yeah i think it needs to be a bit more fresh because we're so inured to the stereotypes that we've already seen and the tropes that we've already been faced with in so much pop culture that just placing queer characters in those same tropes and stereotypes doesn't work we've all grown out of that we need more and there's so many stories to tell so like this book red white and royal blue it's a different take on the regular romance novel but at the same time it has its own issues every property does have issues And I'm not saying that we need to hold queer properties at higher standard. I'm just saying we need to move beyond being safe. You can't get a pat on the back just because you put queer characters in your movie or in your book. You need to do more. You need to be more realistic or more fun. It needs to be more representative of the real queer experience and not just queer stories transplanted into straight stories. Agreed. What have you been busy with? Let us know. You can find us on Twitter at studio_geeks or send us an email at studiogeekspodcast@gmail.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode and see you next week. The Studio Geeks logo was created using Canva. The music for our podcast comes courtesy Pixabay.